Well, I'm a pastor, as you know, and you might assume that because I'm a pastor that I've always been a really nice, godly guy. But you might be surprised to know, actually a few of you would be, that I was once a bratty little boy. And I grew up in a family of, where there was five siblings. I have three brothers and two sisters. And we were an aggressive group. So we would fight and carry on and compete with each other. We weren't particularly competitive or interested in competing in sports. But we would create all sorts of scenarios for conflict and confrontation and competition. So for example, mom would take the six of us and she'd divide us up into teams of two. And you guys were on for dishes this night, one person wash, one person dry, one person wash, one person dry, one person wash, one person dry. And so if you were on for washing, or if you were on for drying rather, what, what we discovered early on is that if you let your sibling wash the dishes and then you just wait, eventually the dishes will dry and you can just put them away. So we tried to get away with that, but then the person washing would keep going and dumping water on the dishes to keep them wet because they didn't want to extend any grace and mercy to you. And so it was always this fight and competition when we went for a drive. This was like in the pre-minivan era. We had these big old cars. You could fit three or four kids across the back seat, across the front seat, and we'd always run to jostle and elbow each other to try to get in the front seat. And that often caused some conflict. If there was food out, it was gone pretty quick. After my parents separated and later divorced when I was 10 years old, we were in a period for about 10 years of some pretty hard, hard times, a lot of poverty. And food was scarce. And with four boys in the house in particular, we would scarf down anything we possibly could and you know, leave everybody else hungry. In fact, I remember when I first started dating my wife, I was an adult at this point, And I went into her parents' Mennonite home and I'm like, what on earth? How is it possible to have so much food out? There was like a pie. I remember there being a pie on the counter and thinking, I don't think I've ever seen a whole pie in a house on the counter with someone not eating it. Anyway, we would would fight, we'd carry on and and we would compete. And all of us in some way, shape or form are are, uh, bent in that direction. So maybe you're, you're an athlete. And if you're an athlete, you'd like to win. And it just kind of infuriates you when you come in second or third or fourth. Or maybe you are an intellectual and you love to get A's at school. And it just kind of gets under your skin a little bit if, if you don't make the honor roll or if you are not acknowledged as one of the top students in the class. So whether it's fighting over the dishes or fighting for a trophy or fighting for straight A's, all of us have this built-in notion that the way to win is to be number one. The way to win is to be strong. The way to win is to be ahead of everyone else. Is that not true? It's, It's innate to us. Now, today I would like to talk about spiritual victory. We're here today because we want to become more like Jesus. Is that not why we're here? We want to win spiritually. We want to live our lives productively and profitably. We do not want to squander our 70 years. We want to win spiritually. But what's interesting is that when it comes to spiritual victory, the equation is much different than it is on the track, in the kitchen, or in the classroom. 
the equation for victory is much, much different. In this life, we want health, wealth, prosperity, recognition, acknowledgement. But did you know that spiritual victory takes us down a very different path? That according to the word of God, there are things held in tension. In the word of God, we learn that both prosperity and poverty can lead to a spiritual blessing. Health and sickness can be a blessing. Life and death itself can be a blessing. Both divine revelation and suffering can be a blessing. The favor of man and the persecution of man can be a blessing in our lives. So join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We've been preaching through this epistle for several months. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And the lesson that God has for us today is that both supernatural blessing and suffering both serve to point us to Christ, which is the true win. That's the true win. Both supernatural blessing and suffering, weakness, your deficits, failure, can point us to Christ and give us the win. Let's see how both blessing and suffering are actually blessings from God that posture us for spiritual victory. So we're going to start off with the first six verses or so. And the lesson here is that sometimes God supernaturally strengthens us in order to strengthen us. Now later we're going to learn that sometimes God supernaturally weakens us in order to strengthen us. But lesson number one, sometimes God supernaturally strengthens us to strengthen us. So we're going to start off in verse one. The background is that Paul had written an offensive letter to the church called the painful letter prior to 2 Corinthians, somewhere between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. The church had taken offense to it, or at least some in the church. Because they were offended by Paul, they started listening to some other preachers, fake apostles, super apostles that helped them to attack Paul's reputation because they didn't really want to listen to his message. So Paul is often in this book defending himself, defending himself. And in the previous chapter, he rattles off a long list of the sufferings and persecutions and trials that he'd been through. He does it awkwardly. He's like, you know, I'm not saying this to brag about myself, but the reality is my resume is better than yours. I've been in jail. I've been persecuted. I've been flogged. I'm the real deal. He's boasting, but he's boasting in the Lord. So here he says, I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, he acknowledges it doesn't benefit spiritually in a direct way. But here's what he says. I go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So we've talked about all the beatings I've taken for Christ. Let's talk about some visions and revelations I've received. So speaking in the third person, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. It was some sort of an ecstatic, very unusual experience that he had to the point that he, he wasn't even sure whether it was in the body or whether he'd been transported out of it. 
And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, repeats himself. I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man must not utter. On behalf of this man, so he's tipping us off to the fact that it's actually him, I, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast. In other words, in my spiritual man, I'm going to tell you what God did for me, but I'm not doing it in my flesh. Don't want you to think that. Except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, I don't really care about my resume. I'll tell you a little bit about it, but I don't really care about it. What I really care about is you listen to what I say and you pay attention to how I live for Christ. So we'll just pause there and unpack this a little bit. So again, the context is that Paul is defending his role against these fake super apostles that had duped the church into thinking that Paul was inferior and therefore not to be heeded. And as he describes in chapters 11 and 12, his walk with the Lord, he describes an incredible encounter, a unique encounter with the Lord that as best as we can tell, he had kept private for 14 years. Now, 2 Corinthians was probably written in and around 56 AD, so halfway through the first century, 30-ish years or so after our Lord ascended. And this is the time when 2 Corinthians would have been written. So if you go back 14 years earlier, this would take you to the early 40s. This would be in this roughly 10-year period of silence, more or less silence, where we know very little about Paul's life. He does tell us that he was doing some preaching, but essentially he was sort of in the seminary of life. He'd come to faith in Christ. He was in Syria and Sicilia. He was probably studying and being mentored and developing his spiritual gifts and so forth and so on. And during that period of time, he had this ecstatic experience with God. Maybe he had told a friend or two, we don't know, but by and large, it had been kept secret. And now, as these super apostles attack Paul, he, he reminds them, or he teaches them for the first time, about this phenomenal encounter he had had with God. And bear in mind that the other apostles that were called by Christ, you remember back in the Gospels when Christ went around and he called the first group of apostles to himself. There was 12 of them. One ultimately bailed out Judas because he wasn't the real deal and he was replaced. But you have these 12 apostles that had all seen the risen Christ, had spent time with Christ, had learned directly from Christ and were used mightily by Christ. But Paul was kind of a unique apostle. He had initially started off as a persecutor of the church but he had had this revelatory encounter with God on the road to Damascus, Syria. God had converted him, confronted him with his sin, converted him. He lost his vision for a period of time. Ultimately, his vision was restored, and eventually he would be commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles. 
So he has that encounter. That's unlike you know, the seashore encounter that the other apostles had had with Jesus. It was a revelatory encounter where the ascended Christ had revealed himself to Paul. And then here we have this visionary encounter, not so much of a revelatory encounter because he tells us that the things he learned, he couldn't even put into words. He couldn't even utter them. So they were, it wasn't a revelatory encounter in that God was revealing revelation from him in order that he might build up the church. But it was a visionary encounter whereby God blessed Paul in such a way, affirming his calling, affirming his relationship to equip him for a life of suffering and ministry and spiritual fruit. This encounter that he had is unexplainable in so many ways. But one thing that is true is that it was a supernatural encounter with the living God. Paul talks about it as being an encounter whereby he was taken up into the third heaven. Now, generally, when we look out at the sky during the day and we see the sun or the clouds or the rain, or we lay out at night, we look up at the stars, we understand that we tend to think of heaven, the heavens, the sky, in three layers. So we have the atmosphere around the earth. That's sort of the first heaven. Then we have outer space. That's like the second heaven. And then the third heaven is the abode of God. Paul makes it clear, I wasn't floating around in a cloud. I wasn't hanging out on Mars for a little while. I was in the presence of God in some way, some mysterious, supernatural, hard to explain, having trouble putting it into words kind of way. Why does he share this with these early believers? To help them to understand how God, through these encounters, had strengthened him in his faith to ultimately equip him for ministry. You might be sitting here today thinking, well, I haven't had an encounter like that. (laughs) Feeling a little bad, a little ripped off, a little disappointed. But I wouldn't let that rattle your cage too much because even Paul's description of this encounter in the New Testament era suggests that virtually no other, maybe no other, New Testament era, first century believer, had had an encounter with God like this either. It served to strengthen, inform, and affirm Paul's ministry, but it wasn't necessarily a normative encounter that other Christians had. So I think it would be a stretch for us to assume that we will experience the same things. It's not impossible. And it could happen to you, or maybe it has happened to you. But I don't think the teaching of the text is meant to be, well, this is what you should expect this afternoon. Get ready for it. But it's far far more likely that this text can serve in our lives to get us thinking about the times when we have had supernatural encounters with God and how those have served to strengthen us. So I can think back to many points in my spiritual journey where I've encountered God in an unusual, strengthening kind of way. 
The first one was on October the 6th, 1979. When I came home from a gospel meeting and I was deeply convicted about my own sin, I was broken in my sin and I realized that I was lost, spiritually disconnected from God. And the gospel was made clearer to me and all I can tell you is that it was almost like I was in a dark room and someone flipped the light switch. And I know that's when God converted me and regenerated me. And that moment, that seminal moment, has served to ground me time and time again in my life when I've questioned, when I've doubted, when I've struggled. I can think of many other times. I can think of a time when I was about 14 years old and our family was topsy-turvy and everything was sort of tied in a knot. Very broken home, very dysfunctional. And I'd had this big blow up with my mom. And I was just furious. And I remember going down to my room and I was angry and I was frustrated and I was irritated and I was crying. And I just buried my face in my pillow and I started to scream. And in that moment, God reminded me of a song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That was a healing moment for me. I remember a time when I was a camp counselor as a teenager. And I would go to camp and we'd have a lot of fun, but I'm not sure I really was bearing a lot of fruit. But there was this one week when the Lord just kind of, I guess, overtook me. And I led a, Christ, a child to Christ this day and then that afternoon and then the next day. And it just seemed like I was the camp evangelist. And it was an affirmation of God's ability to use a nobody to accomplish something of eternal value. I can think to the time when the Lord called me into vocational ministry. I thought I was going to go into the trades. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I enjoyed doing. And the Lord called me into vocational ministry. And there was a series of circumstances surrounding that. I can think of the time when after eight years of ministry, the Lord worked in my life and my wife's life. And we left our previous ministry and we began to lay the groundwork 20 years ago to plant this church. I remember the time 16 years ago when my wife was on life support in a hospital, almost dead, 12, 13% chance of living. And I, I remember in that moment, she'd just given birth to our fifth child. I remember looking at her and saying to the Lord, if you want her back, she's yours. And the Lord beautifully healed her in that moment. And 26 years of marriage in a few weeks or a couple months. As you think about God working in your own life, can you point to key junctures like that? Maybe not third heaven experiences, but critical moments when God's grace has strengthened you, God has revealed himself to you in an extra special, out of the norm kind of way. Why? Why, why don't these happen every day? <laughs> we probably wouldn't notice them. But when they do happen, they serve to strengthen us and affirm God's supernatural presence in our lives, as they had with Paul. How do these moments benefit us? Well, they may not benefit us when we're going about the grand task of apologetics. We're sharing our faith. and We're like, well, I had an encounter with Christ, and that's why he's real. Or this is what God did. And they're like, I don't care. You can't prove it. It may not benefit the skeptic, but it benefits us, does it not? It strengthens us in our faith. 
It reminds us when we doubt that God is alive and well, he's moving in this world. He's operative in this world. We're theists, not deists. God is moving among his people and stirring our hearts. It is God's sweet presence that is a grace to us that serves to build us up. So we should pray for these things and we should know God is interested in us. And when we struggle, we should think back to how God has redemptively worked in our lives, transforming us, revealing himself to us, encouraging us, using us in unusual ways. You could say then that it's in our strengths, in our victories that God strengthens us. But what's fascinating about the Christian life is that sometimes God supernaturally weakens us to strengthen us. And and this is where it can be difficult to accept. It can be difficult to understand because the rest of life doesn't work this way. You don't get a trophy for losing on the track. You don't get the applause of men when you get D minuses on your report card. But in the spiritual life, sometimes God supernaturally weakens us in order to strengthen us. So from verse 7 and following, the text goes on to say, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He says it twice. So now we know what the purpose of the thorn is because it's said twice. To keep me from becoming conceited, prideful, self-reliant. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And he said to me, okay, I'll take it away. Sorry. And all of a sudden the Clouds rolled away and butterflies were floating by and birds were chirping in the trees and everything was great again, right? No, it's not what God does. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest That's an abiding word may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am what's the next word. I don't want you to miss it. Go ahead and say it. I'm content. Woo. Sounds like some super spiritual weirdo whose feet are not actually planted on planet earth, but it's true. He doesn't just say, okay, I'll tolerate it. I'll put up with it. I'll endure it. (laughs) For the sake of Christ, then I'm content. I'm okay with it. With my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see how unusual that sounds? Because we're told, no, when you're strong, you're strong. When you're strong, you're strong. When you get to the front seat of the car first, that's when you're strong. When you get the A, that's when you're strong. When you eat the last piece of pie, that's when you're strong. But the Bible says, when I'm weak, then I am strong. 
It's fascinating how real and earthy the Bible is because it reminds us here of the temptation towards arrogance, conceitedness. Spiritual blessing, believe it or not, can lead to conceit. Oh, I've had all these encounters with God. All these encounters with God for Paul. I had a Damascus Road experience. Everyone else just had a seaside experience. I went to the third heaven. You haven't even made it to the second one yet. Unless you're Neil Armstrong. Oh, I've been walking with Jesus for 40 years. I'm a pastor. Conceit. Look at that guy across the room. He clearly doesn't have it together, but I do. Conceit. Spiritual blessing can lead to conceit. Think of all the worship leaders we've listened to over the years whose songs have blessed us. Then we find out, oh, they cheated on their spouse or they've apostatized in the Christian faith. The pastors that led our churches that compromised themselves or are serving the other team now. There's a long list. Think of all the television evangelists that led thousands to Christ but turned out to be total charlatans. All the churches that people poured their time, talents, and energies into building. The great denominations of yesteryear that compromised the gospel and are no more. Many of the great denominations now are just real estate boards. They're just liquidating property to pay for the pensions of their retired pastors who never preached the gospel. And look what it led them to. Think of all the people that you know that once professed, were baptized, served in the church, and they're no longer following Jesus at all. They were spiritually blessed in many ways, but they have fallen away. Paul reminds us here, encounters with God. Notice he talks about revelations, the greatness of revelations. The greatness of God's blessings can lead to conceit. Maybe this is one of the biggest problems of the Western church today. The reason why it appears to be so cowardly and timid is because it's been blessed so much and it refuses to give it away. It's not cupped-handed living, it's closed-fist living. They're holding on to it with all their might. So what Paul does, or what God does for Paul, is he gives him a thorn. Now, many attempts have been made to identify the thorn. Many attempts. And it does get your mind thinking, doesn't it? I wonder what the thorn was. So people spend a lot of time speculating, what was the thorn? And there's been many, many different examples given. Some say that he, he had a speech impediment because previously he was criticized for not being a good speaker. Some think he might have had some form of epilepsy. Some think he was a hunchback. Some think he might have struggled with homosexuality because he wasn't married. It was a sin of the flesh. He didn't participate in it, but it was always a temptation. Much ink has been spilt trying to identify what the thorn was for Paul. And God doesn't tell us. And I think that's a blessing because if God had identified the thorn, what would we do? Well, it's not my issue. I don't struggle with that. 
and maybe the meaning of the text would be lost or the applicability of the text would be lost. But if you're sitting here today and you're a Christian, I know you have a thorn. We all have a thorn. Sometimes I think I have a lot of them falling into a thorn bush. Things that you're like, okay, why am I so still so immature in that area? Why would that rattle my cage? Why wouldn't I trust more? Why'd I say that? <laughs> and then we have thorns of the flesh. Many that struggle with crippling physical ailments that, that make it difficult. I have a dear friend who fell off a roof in the mid 80s who has had a migraine headache every single day of his life for the past 30 plus years. And he still has the joy of the Lord. Maybe you can relate. Why wasn't the thorn identified? Because we would probably say, I can't relate. But we can relate because we all have a thorn. The thorn is described as being something that's in the flesh. So perhaps a physical ailment or something of the flesh, depending on how he's using that spiritually or physically, something about his spiritual condition that bothered him, some sort of a besetting temptation, something he hadn't yet shaken. Now, it's one thing to have a thorn in the flesh, but it's another thing when the devil capitalizes upon your thorn in the flesh. And that's what happened to Paul. Because the passage goes on to say that it, it, be, it was a messenger of Satan. We can think back to Job. Remember Job, a contemporary of Abraham, maybe even a little older than Abraham, who had, all, had life going for him, right? He was blessed by God. He was a godly, humble guy. He had all these kids. He had the, the house going on, the livestock, and the great wife, and all that kind of stuff. And then Satan and God have this conversation, and God permits Satan to start to take all this from him. And before long, he's absolutely destitute. His body's a wreck. His wife's emotionally abandoned him. His children have died. His livestock have died. And all his theologian buddies show up, you know, the new seminary grads. And they're like, well, Job, you know, we took a seminary course on suffering. So they spend chapter after chapter after chapter unloading, well, it might be because of this, and it might be because of this. And there's this on chapter after chapter of why and when, and why does God allow suffering? And let's all get philosophical and theological about it, and yada, 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 yada. And then there's this young guy, Elihu, who's not supposed to say much because he's like the intern. Maybe the intern's intern. And he speaks out. He basically says, okay, enough. And he points people to God. And at the end of the, 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 the episode, essentially the takeaway is Job doesn't get a reason. He doesn't get an explanation. He doesn't get an apology from God. God says, I'm in charge. I can do what I want. The sooner you accept that, the better your life's going to be. Job repents. He trusts in God's sovereignty. He's restored and God restores so many of his blessings. But at the end of Job, you still don't really know why. What is the most commonly asked question of, Christian, of, of skeptics towards Christianity? I would say it is, why does a good God allow suffering? It's the age-old question, why does a good God allow suffering? And then, do we not ask it too? 
I'm your servant, Lord. Why are you allowing me to go through this? Why? When we have thorns in our lives, weaknesses in our lives, Satan comes and he capitalizes upon our weakness. And he's very sly and he's very subtle and he whispers in our ears. I don't think God loves you anymore. He's forgotten you. You've been duped. This whole Christian thing is a farce. You're nothing. You're going to do it again. See, we have these weaknesses and Satan capitalizes upon them to try to tear us down, to try to get us out of the game. And many have succumbed to it. How persistent is Satan? Well, look at the word here. He buffets us, not buffet. He buffets us, reoccurring over and over again. He attacks over and over again. So can God not heal us? Absolutely. God can heal us of anything. Does God always heal us? Not if he wants to use our sickness or our weaknesses to strengthen us. Then he doesn't heal us. So what is it that is sufficient for our perfecting? Another encounter, some more revelation, another great day at church. No. His grace It is God's grace in suffering that perfects us. So we all need to ask ourselves a very awkward and uncomfortable question. Am I willing to accept suffering from the Lord to strengthen me? Or am I going to cut and run? Am I willing to accept suffering from the Lord to strengthen me? Persecution, physical ailments, trial and tribulation, abandonment, lack of sanctification to strengthen me. Paul tells us that he was more than willing to boast of his thorn than the vision, this credible vision that he had from God because While the vision might prove God's blessing, the thorn proved that Paul had to rely upon God's power to strengthen him. See, if it was just just the, the road to Damascus experience, just the third heaven experience, then Paul would be pretty hot stuff. Man, look at this guy. I'm hoping I get some of that. And over time, that can kind of allow us to start to treat God as a, our genie. He owes us something, take advantage, start to brag on it, start to think we're pretty significant. But the thorn reminds us of our need. Even if you've had a road to Damascus experience, you still need grace. Even if you've been to the third heaven, you still need grace. Even if you more or less have it together, brother or sister, you still need grace because you all have a thorn. We need to be reminded more often than not that we are never the heroes of our own stories. Sometimes we think we are. We're not the heroes of our own stories. God is the hero of our story. 
because it is his grace. It is because of his grace that we have anything. And it's because of his grace in the moment, even if we feel at times we have nothing, that we have something to look forward to. I'm so thankful that the word of God challenges us on every level. It challenges our minds, our emotions, our intentions. Our, the deepest part of us is challenged by the word of God. And this word here, content, I, I just, I asked you to read it out loud because I wanted it to, I wanted to, to impress it upon your mind. It leaps off the page at me. Not only did he like, okay, Lord, I'll accept it. This world is not my home, just passing through, so I'll put up with it for a little while. But he, he received it. He was content in it. He had already accepted the problems of life because he had discovered the spiritual secret behind the problems of life properly appropriated. So you ready for this? Earthly weakness is actually a means to spiritual strength. Earthly weakness is a means to spiritual strength. And the reason for that is because it's not sourced in you. You can't take credit for it. How does a guy who falls off a roof and has migraine headaches for over 30 years possibly find joy? not in his physical relief, but in God's grace. How does a Christian that's been saved for decades, but still struggles with sin, how do they overcome? When God is gracious, when God is gracious, God gets the credit. God gets the credit for it. Earthly weakness is a means to spiritual strength. Some, when they experience earthly weakness, they just apostatize. They just cut and run. They give in. They compromise. They become a CNN Christian. What they preach and what they stand for is the same as what the mainstream media preaches and stands for. Their message isn't any different. But the Christian who's encountered God stands firm even if they're in the minority. You know, there must be a message in this. Two different people from two different cities, not even from this city, both texted me at different times this morning to encourage me with the exact same biblical illustration. The one of Gideon. Remember Gideon? I need some warriors. 32,000 show up. If you're a wimp, go home. 22,000 take off. He whittles the army down to 300. I think that's less than 1% of the original. They go to war and they win. Look what's happening to the Western church today. Most people have scampered off to their homes. Stay home, stay safe. We, don't, we can do our evangelizing later, our baptizing later, our public ministry later. We'll demonstrate resurrection hope after the virus is gone. Run off. But the remnant remains. Be among the remnant. And make sure that you're being led by God's grace because if you're not, you won't survive because it's not going to be a fun road. And you're not going to get public applause. You're not going to get a trophy. You'll probably lose your job. 
You might get a ticket. But we live in a culture where so many Christians, they just, they, they give up so quickly. Public witness, we're going to give up on that. Why? Well, I don't want an $880 ticket. I don't want to be shamed on Twitter. I don't want someone to call me a granny killer. So I'm going to cut and run. Look what Paul went through. God's grace is sufficient for all that. You know, we needn't expect a third heaven experience daily, but when you have one, cherish it because you'll be able to think back to it. And it will strengthen you as God stirs your life and blesses you and encourages you and reveals himself to you in extra special ways. Secondly, lean into suffering and ask God to teach you and to mature you through the sufferings of life. Don't just, I mean, I don't even know if I want to say this, but we almost need to adjust our prayers to Lord, take the persecution away, take the suffering away, but not until I have learned what you want me to learn from it. And even in saying that, it sounds from a human perspective kind of silly. But that's the truth. And that's what some of us need. I want to take you back to Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, and just give you one final thought. This is from Paul's conversion experience. So many years earlier, he was converted on the road to Damascus. He was blind, and a man by Ananias comes and visits him. And in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 to 16, God says to Ananias about Paul, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Who wouldn't want that as their life commission as a Christian? Nobody? We all want that, right? Hey, wow, wouldn't that be great? God wants me to be a chosen instrument. God wants me to be among the remnant. God wants me to be his ambassador. We would all want that, right? But listen to what God says about Paul to accomplish that purpose. He says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What's the ultimate goal? The mission of God is always the glory of God. That's the mission of God. But we benefit from it too. It's for the sake of his name. How is God's name lifted up as God's people suffer? We have a deficient view of suffering in the West. We think it means God has abandoned us. But it's one of the surest signs that God has actually sanctifying us. It's a grace to us. We don't ask for it. We don't unnecessarily invite it. But it, it's a grace to us properly responded to. And I believe that God, in this sense, is being very gracious to a very rebellious Western church today by causing us to suffer. But he will give us the grace if we desire it. He's causing us to suffer, to strengthen us because we are weak need. We lack courage. We can sing all the, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all to him I surrender songs we want. 
But when push comes to shove, many of us are very fearful. So God has given us a grace whereby we might suffer in order that God might prove himself to be adequately gracious in order that we might succeed and draw closer to him. To be chosen is to suffer. And ultimately, it's all about and all for the sake of his name, his glory, which makes it worthwhile. So remind yourself of these things, church, and may you be strengthened by them. And may God be gracious to us all. Thank you.